0: Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you for being here. Uh, If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is David, and I am part of the staff here at Severn. I'm actually the small group's director. And uh, last week we were outside, and we took a break from our series, but today we're jumping back into our series called Peaks and Valleys, uh, where we're looking at the life of David. And I wanted to start today uh, by asking you guys a question. And uh, you don't have to answer out loud, uh, but this is the question. It's have you ever experienced something in your life that left you reevaluating everything you thought you knew about God. So for a lot of people, uh, that's the moment in their life where they walk away from the faith. That's the moment in their life uh, where they decide to just write off uh, the God of the Bible altogether. Uh, But I wouldn't be surprised uh, if there was many of us sitting here today who've either experienced something like that or are currently experiencing something that has just left you feeling maybe angry or confused towards God or just feeling distant from God. And uh, if, you, if that is you or if, if that's you and you're watching online, I'm, just, I'm glad you guys are listening today because uh, the story we're going to look at in David's life today is a time when he encountered uh, that exact kind of situation that kind of left him baffled about God. But uh, the, uh, the interesting thing, the thing that's worth noting is by the end of what we're going to look at today, uh, David actually finds himself in a closer relationship with God and experiencing joy in the presence of God. So it kind of lends the question, you know, okay, so what got David from point A to point B? And we're going to look at three things today uh, that David learned or experienced or was reminded of in this story uh, that if, if we can learn and we can uh, experience, be reminded of, that it can help us also um, when we encounter these times where we're just left questioning, you know, what is, it, what is God really? Who is God really? Uh, that it can actually bring us closer to the real God and actually leave us experiencing joy in the presence of God. And to do this, uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 6, and uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's kind of long, um, so bear with me, but uh, it's an interesting story, so hopefully it'll keep your attention. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 6. David again assembled all the choice men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Bela Judah. The ark is called by the name, the name of Yahweh, of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the Ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the Ark. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Then they came to Nacon's threshing floor. Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place an outburst against Uzzah, as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to move the Ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The Ark of the Lord remained in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and had the Ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the Ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michael, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent of David uh, that David had set up for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh of hosts. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people left, each to his own home. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter, Michael, came out to meet him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. A lot of sarcasm in that. (laughs) Sarcasm is in the Bible. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person who would expose themselves. David replied to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will humble myself even more and humiliate myself. I will be honored by the slave girls you spoke about. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. So after reading that, you might actually be thinking, you know, I don't like that story at all. That's actually the sort of thing that makes me reconsider everything I thought I knew about God. And uh, and while I totally understand that, um, th- I would like to point out this uh, this story, as we'll see as we get into it, um, really has like the central theme of the entire story of the Bible kind of in it. And there's so much we can learn from it. So I want to uh, just jump into it here. So just to kind of recap, uh, this story starts off with a celebration. You know, the Ark of God is coming to uh, the city that's basically the capital of Israel at this point. And just a little bit of backstory: uh, the Ark had been captured at the beginning of 1 Samuel uh, by Israel's enemies. They'd had it for a while, it didn't work out for them, so they just sent it back for free, sent it back to Israel, and it ended up staying at this guy Abinadab's house for a couple of years. And now David's finally bringing it to the center of the life of his country, the center of his life. And uh, what the Ark is, in case You're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant beyond Indiana Jones. Uh, What the Ark of the Covenant is, it was something that God had the nation of Israel build um, after he'd brought them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. And it was a box. It was a wooden box overlaid with gold. And inside it, you would have had some very significant items um, based on, you know, from Israel's past. You would have had some manna, which is the food that God sustained Israel with um, when they were in the wilderness. You would have the staff of Aaron, who was uh, Moses' brother. I mean, maybe most significantly, there would have been the the stone tablets with the law of God on them um, that actually, when God gave the law to Moses, those were actually inside this ark. And the ark would have been kept in the holiest of holies, you know, the holiest place in the tabernacle or the temple. And on, on top of the Ark would have been the lid, which was called the mercy seat, which had these, these angels. You probably saw that word, the, the cherubim, had these angels on there. Also, it was gold. And that is where God would literally meet with his people. His glory would rest there on the mercy seat. And once a year, the, the high priest would go and offer sacrifices and atone for the sins of Israel on the Day of Atonement. And there's so much we could talk about. We can get into all kinds of details about the Ark. But the, really, the, I think the most important thing, especially for today, for us to recognize uh, for time's sake, is that the Ark... Uh, really uh, symbolized and represented the imminent presence of Yahweh, like the presence of God with his people. It's literally where he would meet with them. So what we have here at the beginning of the story, it's very significant. David's putting the presence of God back in the center of his life, in the center of his kingdom's life, and it's all a big celebration, and then it just ends shockingly and abruptly when one of the ox stumbled. And this guy, Uzzah, if that's how you say his name, I have no idea, actually. I just listened to a few other people, and I was like, I'm going to go with Uzzah. (laughs) But when he reaches out, and he touches it, and he's struck dead. And this is the moment where David is left kind of baffled. You know, we read that he was angry, that he feared God, and that he was confused on how to proceed. It said he wouldn't bring it any further. And he asks this question that I think is a very significant question. He says in verse 9, he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? In other words, he's saying, how can I ever be close to this God? And this actually brings us to the first thing uh, that David is either reminded of or comes to know or experience in a new way uh, that we need to know in these moments when we're baffled by God. And that's number one, that God is holy. And uh, the word holy, it's not one that we use all the time nowadays, especially outside the church. Uh, It's usually used as an expression like, Holy moly. Um, I don't know if you guys still say that. <laughs> That's said in our house occasionally. Um, or as an insult, like, oh, okay, holier than thou. Well, you're, you're, it's just a way to basically judge, judgmental people just to use that. Uh, so needless to say, we just, we need a better understanding of the idea of holiness. And again, we could talk way longer about that, but just to uh, just give a summary, when the Bible is talking about God's holiness, it's talking about his uniqueness. Like the word literally means set apart. And it, it's talking about not only the fact that he's morally perfect, but also that he's all-powerful, he's unique, he's the creator of all life. Uh, basically, God is different. You know, His ways are different than our ways. And a, a helpful illustration that I've heard to kind of think about the holiness of God is thinking about the sun. Uh, the sun is unique in our solar system. It's the only one we have. And it's powerful. Uh, it's life-giving. gives life to here, us here on this planet. However, if you were to hang out with Elon Musk and fly towards the sun... Uh, it's going to destroy you because it's, also, it's powerful and just the nature of the sun, it's going to destroy you. And that's the same thing that we see with God's holiness is his holy nature and our sinful nature just don't mix. And if we get too close to him, we can't be in his presence without it destroying us. And we see that uh, with what happened to Uzzah. And to, I think it's also important, important for a little more backstory on the ark. Uh, that shouldn't have surprised everyone as much as it seemingly did uh, because God actually gave some very specific instructions to Israel. Um, surrounding the ark, and actually how to transport the ark. Uh, for example, there was a group of people called the Levites, they were one of the tribes of Israel. They were the only ones who could move it. <coughs> and they had to move it by carrying it on poles that were made for it, not, not on a cart, actually never on a cart. And you had to cover it when you moved it, and you could never touch it. So needless to say, all of those had been disregarded or ignored. But what's important to point out, I think, about the rules surrounding the ark, is it wasn't just These weren't just rituals to appease the gods like every other religion you'll see where it's do these things you can be close to God he'll be happy as long as you do these things what those rules surrounding the ark do and I think their their main purpose is it shows Israel and it shows the surrounding nations it shows us today about who God is it shows us the holiness of God so while the ark represents the imminent presence of God with his people the rules surrounding the ark show this gap, this chasm between a holy God and us, a sinful people where you know the Bible would describe us as there's none of us who are good, there's none who are righteous. And, you know, and, and disregarding those or ignoring the, that holiness of God, kind of supposing or presuming on the holiness of God led to the death of Uzzah. So I think you might be wondering, How does this, why, do, why does this even matter to us? And I think there's a really important lesson here, uh, and that's that at the beginning of this passage, you see David has really good intentions. He wants to bring the presence of God into his life and into the life of his nation. But due to the disregard of God's holiness, it ends up leading to death as he's trying to get to God in his own way. And I think that's so important for us because it shows us that sincerity is not a significant substitute for truth. So our sincereness in how much we wanna be around God or how close we wanna get to God isn't a sufficient substitute for the truth about God. And in this instance, regarding the truth of the holiness of God, So Charles Schultz, uh, the creator of Charlie Brown, has uh, famously said that it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. And as nice as that idea might sound, and as popular as that idea might be, it just simply isn't true, especially when you think about relationships. So imagine if you had someone in your life who sincerely believed they were your spouse, but they weren't your spouse, and they tried to behave like they were. You know, they filed their taxes jointly with you, and they ate your food, and they slept in your house, and they picked up your kids from school, uh, that person's going to end up in jail really fast. (laughs) So while this idea that, hey, it's nice to be sincere, that's that's more important than what's true, it doesn't even hold up to the the most simple real-life example. And I think that's so important for us because it shows us that we can do the same thing. That sounds like, oh, we would never do that. We can do that same thing in our relationship with God. We can think, hey, as long as I mean well, God's fine with however I want to approach him and view him and live my life. But what this passage shows us should give us some pause, you know, because God's holiness should really concern us. And if you're wondering, how does this help me when I encounter these times in life that I'm kind of baffled by God? um, It's because when we recognize that God is holy, that he's that different than us, then it allows us to know that we're going to be surprised by him sometimes. You know, his ways are not our ways. If we're following a real God, we shouldn't be surprised when we're surprised, if that makes sense. You know, if you're, if you're never caught off guard by God, if, you're never, if, it never, if he never challenges you, the odds are you're not actually following a real God. And uh, kind of a simple, you know, self-analysis you can do to try to figure out, am I actually following the real God? Um, you can just ask yourself, when's the last time that God bothered you? You know, when's the last time that something you read about God and his word, or something he called you to do, or something he allowed to happen? When was the last time that actually kind of bothered you and and went up against you? Because, you know, if if you have zero examples of that, it's highly likely that you're not actually following the real God. You've just slowly but surely started to form God into your image, where now you have this God that kind of thinks like you think and likes the things you like and approves of the things you approve and excuses the things about you that you excuse. (laughs) And at the end of the day is a guy that can't help you at all. He's not all that holy, can't save you, has the same weaknesses as you because he's basically just you. And uh, I think it might be helpful uh, to kind of point out that this is something that we we all need to hear, you know, like us sitting here in church on a Sunday morning. Like David had a relationship with God and had to be reminded of the holiness of God. And uh, just to give a personal example of how this can look in our lives, um, I'll just use a personal example so it's less threatening. <laughs> um, so I, I love um, routine. I'm someone who's a big fan of routine, to the point it can be a fault, where like I'm not real great at adjusting on the fly, and to the point that my wife, Shana, has actually said, if someone ever wanted to kill me, it'd be really easy, because they would know exactly where I was at every moment of the day, and uh, I'd be a very easy hit. I'm not sure why Shana's talking about having me killed, though, so <laughs> you can pray for us. Um, <coughs> But anyways, um, where, where the routine aspect of things can really, uh, actually in a weird way, lead to me presuming on the holiness of God is whenever I start to just think, okay, well, this is part of my routine, and I start to assume that God is totally fine with all the ways I spend my time. And he agrees with all my reasons for why I spend my time the way I do. And he would never ask me to change my routine. He knows how much I like routine. He would never ask me to change it or to spend my time differently. However, a cursory glance at this book God revealing himself to us uh, would show that he's given some commands, not suggestions, but commands that are going to take some of my time. Things like loving my neighbor, bearing one another's burdens, going and making disciples. So the real danger becomes in my life and maybe in your life too where I can start to assume things about God, start to assume things about his holiness and start to view him more as just someone who thinks just like I do as opposed to a holy God who is so different than me and whose ways are not my ways and whose thoughts are not my thoughts. But if, uh, if this is where we stopped, and we just said, God is holy, um, it wouldn't help us a whole lot. It would just make us very aware of this separation between us and God. And you can even see where it left David in this story, where after he comes face to face with the holiness of God, he's not willing to take the ark any further. And he asks this question that really we should ask when we become aware of the holiness of God, is how could this God ever come to me? So David leaves the ark with Obed-Edom, which, if you're that guy, like, who appreciates that? You know, like, this just killed somebody. You take it. <laughs> you know, like, so they leave it with this guy, Obed-Edom, uh, and they leave it with them for, for three months. And um, the good news is, this isn't the only thing that David learned um, in this story. It's not the only thing we need to know when we're baffled by God. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 12. This is when David leaves the ark with Obed-Edom, and this will lead us to the next thing. <clears throat> this is verse 10. So he was not willing to move the Ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The Ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and had the Ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. So this brings us to the, uh, the second thing that David experienced or saw about God uh, in this, through this time in his life, something that we need to know when we're kind of confused or baffled by God. And that's number two, that God is good. So not only is God holy, he's also good. And when David sees the way that God blesses Obed-Edom and he blesses this family, it's probably more appropriate to say he was reminded of something he already knew. And he's, he was reminded that God is good. And not only is he good, but he's the best. And that all life and all joy is only found in his presence And uh, in in Psalm 16, I think it's so cool having the Psalms as you go through the life of David because you can kind of see inside the mind of this guy that we're talking about and inside the heart of this guy. But in Psalm 16, David's actually talking about being in the presence of God. And here's some things that he says He says, My heart is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body rests securely. And that sounds pretty good. That's like holistic health. You know, it's his heart, his spirit, his body. It's resting, rejoicing, gladness. And then he goes on and says, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. Like, who doesn't want those things? You know, I'll just kind of recap real quick. You know, who doesn't want to be glad, rested, full of life, have abundant joy, and experience eternal pleasures? So, what I would argue is that for every single person, all of us sitting here, everybody who would not even acknowledge God, for every single one of us, our greatest need is actually to be in the presence of this God, and whether we realize it or not, even all the things that we desire and we look for everywhere else and never find, all of those things we desire are only found in his presence, in the presence of this good God. And that's, that's what David's reminded of whenever he sees the way that God blesses this guy, Obed-Edom, and his whole family. So while God's holiness in these times of confusion, these times of questioning, God's holiness will show us you're going to be surprised by him sometimes, his goodness shows us that you're going to be okay if you trust him regardless of how things look, regardless of how things feel. And often in the church, we can kind of create this false dichotomy of, you know, God either is holy or he is good. And it's kind of natural in us, like as people and his churches, to kind of, you know, overemphasize one over the other. But the, the reality is they're both equally true. It's, it's a false dichotomy. They're not at odds with one another. God is both holy and good. But... The problem for us is that idea that God is good and he's holy kind of creates this paradox for us. It's the paradox of God's presence in that we can't live with him and we can't live without him. You know, we can't live with him because because of our sinful nature and who we are and who he is. We just can't be close to him. It would completely consume us, destroy us. But we can't live without him because all life and all joy is found only in him. So that kind of leads us back to that same question, that same thing that David asked earlier, which is, how in the world do we actually, like what's the way that we can actually be close to this God? And David saw that, that his way at the beginning of this story didn't work out, so, so what's the answer? You know, what's the way that this God can be close to me? And, and actually this is the, the third thing that we're going to look at, the final thing that David's reminded of, the experiences, and the third thing we need to know when we experience this, and we're thinking how can we even be close to this God? How is this paradox solved? And that's number three, that God has made the way. So the second time, Uh, that David goes to bring the ark into the city. You don't see it as as much or as explained out in this chapter in 2 Samuel. But in 1 Chronicles, you can actually read the parallel narrative to this story. And you see that it's very clear uh, that David is no longer just going to try to assume that he knows the way to God. He's going to do it God's way. And he actually goes back and he clearly read the directions that God had given about how to transport the ark. You know, because again, knowing that God is good, knowing that he's holy doesn't get the ark from point A to point B. You know, knowing about God doesn't get us close to God. But he goes back and he he reads these uh, these rules around it. And you can tell that because in 1 Chronicles, he actually um, is talking to the Levites, the people who are the only ones allowed to carry it. And he says, the Lord our God burst out in anger against us because you Levites were not with us the first time. For we didn't inquire of him about the proper procedures. So what that shows us basically is that this time, Instead of, tr- instead of trying to do it his own way, David is going to follow God's way. And while you and I don't have proper procedures that we need to follow surrounding an ark, what we do have is one very specific way that God has told us in his word and has shown us through history is the only way to handle his presence, the only way into his presence. And there's actually a very uh, clear pointing forward to it in this historic very clear uh, incident or detail that's pointing forward to this one way for us. And it's actually not all the rules, because I think there's a danger of us saying like, okay, I'm going to follow all the rules now. That's the way to be close to God. And that's not it at all. You actually see in this passage in 2 Samuel 6, you see this detail where David is going before the ark making sacrifices. And it says that he's wearing a linen ephod, which that doesn't mean anything to us. But what that was, was the clothing of a priest. And he's making sacrifices. He's doing the job of the priest. And this is the king. So, just to summarize, we have this priestly king making a sacrifice to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but this is pointing as clear as day, pointing forward to something that you and I know is the one way that we can handle the presence of God. And that's pointing forward to Jesus, it's pointing forward to the king of kings, who is also called the great high priest the priestly king, who made a sacrifice, not of animals, but of himself, to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. When when Jesus died, we're told that the veil in the temple that would have separated where this Ark was, the holiest place, the veil was torn. And we're given access into the presence of God solely based on the blood of Jesus, not because we followed a bunch of rules, but because Jesus already fulfilled them all. So when you read about the Ark of the Covenant and you're wondering, what does that mean for us today? you can see that it was fulfilled in Jesus. That's why we don't carry an ark around up here. You know, that was already fulfilled. It's not that it was worthless, but it's just it's that he's done it. He's actually fulfilled the law that was inside it. He's atoned for the sins once and for all. We don't need to do more sacrifices. That's what this story is pointing forward to and calling us to see as we see this story. <clears throat> I'm gonna call up the worship team and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna close down here. <clears throat> so if, uh, if God's leading you through something right now, or maybe recently you've been through something that's just left you, you know, questioning what you thought you knew about him. You know, left you feeling angry or confused. I just want to encourage you to remember um, that God is holy, so you're going to be surprised by him sometimes. But also that God is good, so you can trust him, and you're going to be okay if you do. And if you're wondering, well, how do, how do I know? You know, because that's something I think we like to, to ask. Well, how do I know that he's holy? Like, you're just saying this. These are just words. Um, what's so cool is it's not just words. Because the way we know that God is holy and that God is good is by looking to the historical event, the time and the place of Jesus on the cross, because that displays God's holiness and God's goodness more than anything else could. It displays it both at the exact same time. And not only that, it shows that God is holy, it shows he's good, and it shows that he loves you specifically. And he demonstrated that through a historical event, not through just words, not through just theories, but it's something that we can look to as a historical event that actually occurred. So today, while we don't get to decide what God is like, uh, we do get to decide how we respond to him. And you can see David responded in humility to the point that someone actually called him out because they thought he was acting too humble as the king. He responded humbly and said, I'll humble myself even more than this before the Lord. So we can humble ourselves and accept the, the fact that there's only one way to God. It's not through our own effort. It's through Jesus. So we can accept that, we can humble ourselves, or we can reject God. And there's, there's different ways we can reject God. You can reject him outright, which is maybe the more obvious way, but you can also reject him by trying to still get to him your own way with sincere intentions, but not, not regarding anything he said. And maybe the most dangerous way for us here today that we can reject him is by slowly but surely just trying to ignore the things about him we don't like, explain away the things about him we don't understand, and just kind of form him into into our image, into a God that isn't a God at all, who can't really help us at all, can't save us, can't give us life. Because there's only one true God. There's only one. And we read about him in his word. His name is Yahweh and, he, and he's, go, he's, he's holy and he's good and he loves you. Which I think is just an incredible thing to think about. This holy, good God loves you specifically. Not just you generally, but you sitting in that chair or watching in line, he loves you. And he's made a way to him through Jesus. So my, my prayer for all of us today is that, that we would trust him and that we would know him like the one God that actually exists, we would know him more, more truly and we would know how much he loves us more fully, and that that would lead us into his presence and into a joy that isn't found anywhere else. Let me pray for us today. <clears throat> God, we thank you that, uh, that you are holy. We thank you that you're good. If you weren't those things, uh, I, don't, I don't know how we could even call you God. If we got to decide what you were like, that would immediately mean that you were not God. But you are so different than us. You're so so much higher than us, and yet you still love us enough to come down here and lay down your life for us. And God, as hard as that is to understand, we just thank you that it's true. And we just pray that for those of us who are going through times of confusion, for when we do go through times of confusion, that we would be able to hold on to the fact that, that you are holy, that you are good, and that you've displayed that on the cross. God, I pray that just for us as a church, that we would experience your presence in ways maybe we never have before, as individuals and as a group and just that we'd be able to to tell others about your goodness, tell others about your holiness and about your love. God, we just thank you for the way you love us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>